Canuck Central Thursday. This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler. A proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. If you missed the opening hour of the show, we um, talked about what Henrik Sedin had to say on the People Show earlier today and what packages could look like for JT Miller should the Canucks really explore moving the player around draft time. Also, David Amber joined us to talk about the uh, ongoing series in the Stanley Cup playoffs. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. We get uh, closer and closer to the draft, Sat. And uh, you know the combine has been going on. I, I always kind of wonder what... Uh, you know, what are teams really looking for during the combine mm-hmm. outside of, uh, you know, some some good uh, metrics for a lot of the players? And to be honest, I mean, those metrics, they do matter. Um, however, the stuff that matters most is really the interviews. Um, that's usually what, you know, what what, uh, what teams would kind of tell you that that's usually the stuff that matters the most to them. Because usually you have a general sense of what a player's like athletically. They're going to have to really bomb or really excel for that to move the needle as far as the assessment goes. So uh, Mike Morreale writes uh, uh, over at NHL.com, and uh, he said, uh, tweeted today, a popular question by some NHL clubs looking to catch a prospect off guard during the interviews is what animal would best describe him as a hockey player? Most say lion, Uri Slavkovsky today told him uh, wolf. So uh, there you go. A bunch of lions and wolves in the upcoming draft. I mean, hey, listen, I, you, know, you know I love dogs and wolves, so I'm all for the wolf guy. <laughs> Uri Slavkovsky, first overall. Uh, all right, uh, let's, uh, let's bring in our next guest. It is Lauren Kelly, uh, OHL scout, uh, also over at Elite Prospects. Uh, thanks for this, Lauren. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, we're doing well. We're just talking about uh, about the combine, and Sat was saying how you know really the the combine is as much as uh, you know you're getting the metrics on on the, the physicals of all the players. Uh, the interviews are really what uh, what teams are looking at most. Uh, do you agree? Oh yeah, I absolutely agree. I think you know obviously from a fan's perspective, we all always hear about you know the the fitness test, whether it's you know guys not being able to do pull ups or you know throwing up after that VO two max yeah. bike test, but uh, the combine is really the first opportunity for at least teams and management groups to speak with these prospects one-on-one. And, you know, whether it's, you know, asking players what kind of animal that they compare their games to or, you know, <laughs> kind of just learning about their upbringings, how they view their current games, you know, their their development so far, maybe gain a better understanding of the players that their scouts are big fans of or who are they're pushing their teams to pick at the draft you know, learn whether or not these players fit with the organization's values and kind of the direction of the team, where the team is headed. Well, and that's that's absolutely a, a big part of it too. And what I find fascinating in this year's draft is as much as it has been billed as the Shane Wright draft, as we get closer and closer, there is some talk about, you know, who should go number one? Could it be somebody else? Do you think this interview process could really solidify who goes first overall? I think the Canadians, although they've been quite tight-lipped about who they're going to end up selecting, they probably have a good idea. But I definitely think, you know, these interviews will help kind of confirm that uh, direction that they probably are leaning towards right now. Um, Obviously, they've said that they were very impressed with their interview with Wright, and we know that they kind of had this kind of informal social meeting with Slavkovsky, and they're going to have dinner with Logan Cooley. So obviously, there, there doesn't seem to be a decision that's you know, made or firmly made anyways. But uh, 
definitely these interviews will probably help them kind of clear, kind of arrive at a clear answer for them. It's uh, it's always tough when when it's not a clear cut first overall pick. And hey, maybe we thought it was going to be uh, Shane Wright, but you know, do, do you have a thought on uh, on who should be the first overall pick? Um, well, I mean, my region is the OHL, so I've seen a lot more of Shane Wright this season than any other prospect who's been mentioned around that first overall pick. So I think, you know, there's definitely a bit of familiarity bias on my end with where I stand. And I think at the beginning of the year, I would have been like insistent that, you know, of course, Shane Wright should go first overall. But then, you know, throughout the course of the year, you can't ignore what Slavkovsky has done at the Olympics. And then again, at the World Championships. And Cooley's an excellent player as well. You know, he's a player that Canadian GM Kent Hughes is very familiar with given that his son Jack played with Cooley last season. So I think the gap is closed significantly between Wright and, you know, the other top prospects in this draft. But I still think I'd pick him. I mean, the Canadians have spoken, you know, about how they want kind of this franchise, you know, pillar to lead them to success in the coming years. And, you know, they're still going to meet with a few more prospects at the Combine and leading up to the draft. But I think Wright is their guy. I mean, he's been in the spotlight since he was 14 or 15 years old. He knows how to handle kind of those pressure cooker expectations that will come with being selected first overall by the Canadians in Montreal. You know, he's kind of that coach's player. He'll play any role that's asked of him. He played a couple of different roles with Kingston this season, asked to mentor a couple of rookies on the team and show them the ropes. His work ethic and maturity levels are off the charts. And, you know, this is not a knock against Slavkovsky or Cooley or anyone else the Habs could end up taking either. But I think Wright is the player that they're looking for. So I still do believe he ends up going first overall. Oh, it'll be fun to see who ends up going first. And you're, you're, you are most likely correct in saying it is going to be right. That's usually how it ends up going in towards the end. But the intrigue makes for great fodder on sports radio. I'll tell you that much, at least for now. But uh, where the Canucks are concerned at number 15, it's, still, it's a far cry from number one. And one thing that I find really interesting when, when we talk to prospects, analysts, and I want to get your thoughts on this, obviously there's a top tier, the second tier. And when Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford have talked about this draft, they kind of mentioned that they feel that, you know, the, the top two tiers go all the way to 15. Where do you kind of see that cutoff of the tiers as you see it? Like, do you see it at number 15 or do you see it a little bit higher? Like, how do you kind of evaluate those top tiers of this draft? Yeah, so I definitely think, you know, there's probably a tier from one to five. I think we've heard, you know, several names thrown around as, you know, whether they go first, second, third overall. There's probably four or five guys in that kind of tier. And then I think there's a giant tier between maybe five to even like 17, 18. It's just very wide open. You know, I think we underestimate the effect that the pandemic has had on a lot of these guys' developments. Um, and I think that's why there's such a big range in that second tier. You know, we could see some surprises, you know, uh, players that were maybe thought at least publicly to be going later in the first round, maybe teams are picking them earlier. Uh, we kind of just don't have a great sense of, you know, just how this draft is going to play out. I think there's just a lot of kind of room for um, movement uh, in the first round. Lauren Kelly, our guest here on uh, on Canuck Central. You know, we've we've looked a lot at uh, some of the defensemen that are uh, lining up as potential mid first round selections. And you know, you do uh, you are an OHL scout, so we have to ask you about Pavel Mintyakov out of uh, out of Sa- Saginaw. What what do you like about this player? And there's there's kind of a there, there's a few of those uh, defensemen that are kind of lining up in potential mid mid first round picks. 
Well, yeah. So, I mean, with Minshikov, I mean, what's not to like? He's he's just this elite offensive defenseman. You know, he he does. You know, I don't like to do player comparisons too often, but he does remind me of kind of that Kale Matar, Kale McCard type player. Uh, just the constant activations. The play runs through him on the ice. He led Saginaw in scoring as a rookie in the OHL as a defenseman, which you know, obviously Saginaw wasn't a great team this season. They finished last in the league, but uh, that's still quite impressive for you know a player who wasn't familiar with North American hockey coming into this season. So uh, honestly, I don't know if he'll be available at 15. I wouldn't be surprised to see him go in the top 10 at all. Um, but there are definitely a lot of blue line prospects that could be available for the Canucks at 15 if that's, you know, the position that they decide to uh, go Kind of in that range, and you know, obviously Mintikoff's in, in that range, and you know, Denton Matichuk, and and depends on you know how you view guys like Korchinski, Pickering, Luno, Odelius, or even Ryan Chesley. Like of that grouping of players, like who would you think would be a good fit, or would you like as value at number fifteen if Mintikoff is off the board? Oh yes, I mean uh, you mentioned it. If Matichuk is still available at fifteen, I think they they should definitely take him. Very similar to uh, Minchukov, mm-hmm. uh, not only a name but kind of style and play that they a style of play that um, there's uh, you know maybe a little bit of uh, refining that Matichuk needs to do with the skating. But I think you know if he's still there at fifteen, I don't see why the Canucks wouldn't take him. I do like Cali Odilius out of Sweden, a great skater, puck mover, four way mobility, very poised and calm on the ice. I don't, um, 15 might be a little bit high for him, but I still think he'd be a solid choice for the Canucks there. And then Owen Pickering, uh, more of a longer term project, lots of raw tools and talent, needs some refining. He's a great playmaker too. He activates off the point, good retrievals. You know, I think if the Canucks are looking at at it for a defenseman at 15, any of these guys would be solid picks for them. Is there uh, is there an OHL draft eligible you think uh, we're sleeping on or is being slept on? Oh, that's an excellent question. I mean, I've been very high on Owen Beck all year long. Um, I think I have him in the 18 to 25 range, but I know a lot of at least public rankings have him more as like a second rounder kind of in the 30s to 40s. And I think maybe that's because he's got a lower ceiling than some of his peers. You know, he wasn't landing a lot on the score sheet with Mississauga, but I kind of look at, you know, the way he was deployed and how linemates weren't able to finish off plays he generated as kind of a reason for that. Um, I think he's been the most consistent draft eligible OHL forward aside from Shane Wright this season. He doesn't look or play like a rookie on the ice. and He just looks so comfortable and so well adjusted. And he has since the beginning of the year. He's got such mature habits on the ice. He's never cheating defense for offense. He's pointing out open opponents to his teammates to cover. His, his vision and his defensive reads are just excellent. And he's one of the best players I've watched in the OHL in transition, just constantly moving the puck up the ice and pressuring puck carriers and his motor. It's just constant. I mean, he's always making something positive happen when he's on the ice and that kind of shift to shift consistency. It's pretty rare to see from a draft eligible player, let alone a rookie in the OHL. Uh, he was also the best faceoff taker in the entire league this year, you know, uh, not just among rookies. So I think at worst, he's probably a third line center in the NHL, which is, you know, probably lends itself to why he's a little bit lower in most other rankings. Um, But I could easily see him driving a second line or even on the first line wing, just constantly moving play up the ice and doing the little things to help his teammates out. You know, this is a guy who delivers on every shift and he's going to be a coach's dream at the next level. Well, it really seems like trying to evaluate hockey sense is something that obviously has always been important and the teams are really trying to hone in on when you try to evaluate that, like it seems like you're talking about Beck, that really stands out. What are like how important is that to you in your evaluation? When you look at that hockey sense and how far that could go, because that could really make up for a lot of shortcomings if you have excellent sense. 
Right, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, you know, you take take skating, for example, I think that's a skill that can be improved upon or, you know, mm-hmm. um, kind of adapting to, you know, pace and that sort of thing. I think hockey sense is just something that sets a player apart from, you know, whether they're able to anticipate plays quickly or more quickly than uh, other players on the ice, whether they're able to kind of intercept plays or see things that develop before others do and kind of react. I think there's just some things that you can't teach a player. It's kind of just instinctual. And I think, you know, for players who are maybe not as highly skilled, but have that elite level of hockey sense or IQ, I think that's what really sets them apart. Lauren Kelly, our guest here on uh, on Canuck Central. Uh, there's there's a couple of players that we we've talked about a lot in that mid first round uh, in in other uh, in our other interviews. Brad Lambert and and Marco Casper. Um, do you think those players uh, uh, last to the middle of the, middle of the first round, or especially with Casper, it just feels like the the hype is getting him and and maybe pushing him uh, closer to the top ten. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Casper's just been a guy who's been rising all season. Um, I think, obviously, the World Juniors were cut short, but he looked really good there, too. Um, you know, that kind of physical, almost like chaotic game, the style of game that he plays is going to appeal to a lot of teams. Um, I don't know if we see him sneak into the top 10, but maybe right. in that 10, uh, maybe 15 to 20 range, I wouldn't be surprised to see him go at all. Um, as for Brad Lambert, I mean, the skills are undeniable. I mean, just a player who is just so talented, but, you know, obviously there are still question marks surrounding, you know, uh, the kind of maturity level and, uh, whether that shies teams away from picking him higher than maybe his skill set would indicate he should go. Uh, I mean, I guess we'll see, but, uh, I still think they're probably both first round picks. Um, I just maybe... Wouldn't be surprised to see if Casper kind of climbs the rankings, whereas Lambert maybe drops a little bit because of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really interesting. When I talk to, to people about Marco Casper, there are those that wonder about his upside, but I know there are people in Sweden that love his game. So it's going to be really interesting to see uh, if somebody falls in love with him a bit higher. Now, before we let you go, Lauren, and, and we appreciate your time. It's been fantastic so far. The Canucks don't have a second round pick, at least not so far in this year's draft. So kind of putting you on the spot a little bit, but... As far as potential players available a bit later in the draft that you can you might see as a bit of hidden gems, do you have a player or two that you're keeping an eye on that could be real good value after the second round? Oh, I mean, we were just talking about Marco Kasper. He's an Austrian. I mean, a player I might keep an eye out for in the third round is Vincenz Rohrer, and he's another Austrian. He spent his draft year in the OHL with the Ottawa 67s. Uh, he's actually quite close friends with uh, Marco Rossi, who was a first-rounder taken last year by Minnesota. I mean, or sorry, in 2020 by Minnesota. He's got tons of physicality and energy. Uh, he kind of plays a little bit of a similar style of game to Casper, just maybe just not as quite as refined. Uh, got tons of physicality and energy, good off-puck skills, nice flashes of playmaking. And, you know, depending on what teams are valuing at that point in the draft, he could maybe even go late second. But I think he's probably a third-rounder at this point in the year. He's just, you know, one of those players who seems to make everything happen on every ship, whether it's laying a big hit or kind of picking off a pass, uh, tying up the puck carrier. He's got excellent pace and he's aggressive, but he doesn't overcommit or allow it to take him out of the play. And again, we saw a little bit of what he was able to do at the very brief World Juniors with Austria, where he kind of helped set the tone for them in that lopsided game against Canada and generate some offense. 
So when you hear NHL teams talk about building contenders through the draft with mid to late round picks, uh, Roar is the kind of guy who comes to mind for me as a third line energy guy, kind of like a Yanni Gord type. Lauren, we, uh, we really appreciate your time and your insights. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks. It was great to be here. Uh, we really appreciate it. Lauren Kelly uh, joining us here on Canucks Central and uh, OHL Scout. Also works uh, at Elite Prospects and EP Rinkside occasionally on top of that. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shaw. Some uh, some really interesting yeah. things there on, on the draft. And, and Lauren with uh, a good bit of intel and you know, we, we've talked about Minchikov uh, quite a bit. Uh, the way she describes him, it's like, man, that sounds like a great player if he could fall down to the Canucks at 15, but that might be a bit of a stretch, that. Well, the thing, it, it can be, but also it's one of those things we don't know this year with this draft. You know, certain things that uh, teams don't like about players, certain other factors going on around the world that may influence where a team picks a guy or whatever. So who knows? He may be there, he may not be. And there is more projection in his in his game because when I watch him play, you see a lot of the flashes, but you also realize there are improvements he has to make to get to that level. So you're projecting that if he does, he can be super exciting. But I completely agree with what Lauren is saying about him as a prospect because if he hits his potential, that's massive value. And even Denton Matichuk, who we've talked a lot about on this show and those mm-hmm. two specifically about guys to keep an eye on for Vancouver. I could see them being interested in those players, especially Denton Matichuk's maturity in the game he has. He gets a bit better as a skater. There's a lot in his game. And that's the thing with this year's draft. And one of the reasons I don't like the idea of calling it a bad draft. Sure, there's a bit more projection in some of these players. But that doesn't mean the upside isn't high. Yeah, and you know, like you don't always want to look. Well, you want to look at the um, ceiling of a player to a certain extent, especially if you're in the first round. You know, and um, it's it's one of those things where you don't want to. You know, like when she was talking about Owen Beck, and it's you know this guy projects as a third line. Uh, kind of center uh, at the very least. Maybe his ceiling could be a little bit higher if his if his game rounds out a little bit more. And th- there's a certain part of me that's like, well, what's wrong with that? But also, you know, if you're drafting in the top 15, you are probably looking for something with more of a ceiling than that, right? At least yeah. you'd hope so. But when the Canucks drafted Bo Horvat, what was the thought? Like, oh, this guy's going to be a great third-line center for a lot of years. He turned out to be more than that, well, obviously. Well, exactly. And I remember when he was drafted, too, my thought, I remember at the time, I remember being like, hey, I'd, I'd rather you draft Nichuskin because I thought he had higher upside. And obviously, Nichuskin's found his game and become really good now, but it took a while, and it seemed like he was a bust and everything. But And part of it was because I thought Nichuskin had higher upside. But look at Horvat and what he's yeah. done. And when we looked at the pick at the time, I think there was a year before the Canucks had drafted Brendan Gauntz, who projected as a third line type of center type, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Big, not the fastest guy. And it kind of seemed at the time that when you looked at the profile, that Bull was just maybe a slightly better version of Brendan Gauntz. But as you mentioned, they, the Canucks thought there was more in his game. That's why they took him at nine. They thought he was going to project and do even more. And then he had a huge year in the postseason, of course, for the OHL, uh, for the London Knights, the year he got drafted, which helped him get pushed up to ninth overall that year. Because before that big playoff push where he scored like 20 goals in 20 games or whatever it was, um, he was kind of put into that 15, 16 range, 20 range maybe, and then just shot off the draft board. So those things can happen if you pick the right guy. Because the risers sometimes are the right guys because people realize these are the guys you got to pick. And sometimes it's just you getting ahead of yourself. Um, If I were to describe myself as an animal, 
uh, as a hockey player, I'd probably say cheetah. Yeah. You? Yeah. Do they have big calves? Uh, I don't know. People tell me I'm quick on the ice. Quick on the ice. Like maybe, maybe, maybe wow. for the 35 plus league at least. Wow, Dan Riccio. Like, so like well, you, I did run a four nine forty. Sad. Okay. <laughs> like, don't. I love how you, you have like, like, like the ran- speed is the speed is not overrated here. Okay. I love how you like bring up these random compliments you get playing like beer league hockey, and you're like, <laughs> people say I move around like a cheetah on the ice. Like, who who said that? <laughs> no one's ever said that. <laughs> Okay, if I was a hockey player, that's how I would like to be described. It's probably de- well, no, it's definitely not how I would be described. Yes, yes. <laughs> Maybe more like koala or something like that. that could koala, be yeah, koala. Yeah, I mean, just hanging out. There might be two. Just hanging out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> harsh, harsh, bro. Bye, I'm just kidding. Just joking. Uh, so that's what's going on at the combine. Uh, some great takes there from Lauren Kelly. Some great insight. Uh, always, uh, always good to have Lauren on the show and, uh, you can check her out as well on Twitter. As I just bring up, uh, lore Kelly 24 is where you can find her on Twitter to get some more prospect takes, uh, from Lauren coming up, uh, Elliot Friedman's uh, latest 32 thoughts just dropped. We'll take a look at that. See what might be of interest Canucks wise and get more in on some of the series going on around the league. It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. You're listening to Canuck Central. Hour two of Canuck Central is presented by Andrew Sherritt Limited. Your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. Uh, we always encourage you to... Uh, Subscribe and review to the podcast. I would take this as a written review to the podcast, Sat. It's uh, from Rick and Richmond on the Dunbar Lumber text line. Okay. Love the show. Sat, I've always enjoyed you, including uh, when you were the voice of reason with Pratt and Jake. Dan, I'm not sure about many of your sports takes, but you certainly supply comedy relief from taking under in game one to telling us you are a cheetah since you did the 40 in slightly less than five seconds. More like a slow cat. It's from Rick and Richmond. <laughs> uh, hey, at least he's playing along, Rick. I love it. As long as you love the show, say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, say say. Uh, Especially say when it's at want. Dan's expense. Uh, mostly. I, uh, <laughs> Poor Rich. Apparently, slander. Oh man, this is this is something I did not know. We always learn new things on our text inbox. Yeah. Uh, and this one says, FYI, koalas are always stoned on eucalyptus leaves, and that's why they move so slow. Mm. So. I do have, like, a, a eucalyptus scent for my diffuser at Ooh. home. It always it I, works really well. Like, it makes it makes the house smell very fresh. The eucalyptus. Light. It's almost calming at times. It's terrific. I love the eucalyptus smell. And it's really good for, after you, you're cooking or something. Like, it gets rid of everything. Like, nothing yep. stinks afterwards. It's great. Um, and great Dan to clear up. Sloth. It's also good to clear up your um, like sinuses and stuff if you got a cold. Oh yes, yeah. I uh, I even sprinkle it on my laundry too. It's great. Um, Dan Lamuca Riccio. Uh, no, I'm not a cow. Okay, I said a <laughs> cheetah or a <laughs> or a koala. Oh, a koala. <laughs> You're the one who said the koala. I mean, two very <laughs> different animals: cheetah or koala. I mean, those are, it's quite the range you got there, Reach. I like this one from Torgi. Cheetahs are also very agile. 
Torgy. <laughs> is he like implying that I'm not? Torgy, we've met. I, mean, I can be pretty agile. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Getting down the 40s. <laughs> 4940, man. I'm, I'm uh, no, writing it. that on the tombstone. So. Yeah, I know. That's your claim to fame. <laughs> it is the claim to flame. Uh, claim to fame, if I can uh, speak speak English. Uh, all right. So uh, I mentioned 32 thoughts uh, earlier. So Elliot Friedman coming out with a couple of uh, really interesting thoughts, as he always does, uh, some more so than others. And uh, we like to highlight the ones that are more interesting, um, at, at least from a Canucks perspective. So we talked off the top of the show. Josh Elliott Wolf, producer, gave us some of his... Um, trade proposals and we we spend a good amount of time talking about Martin Netchass and where he could be with the Carolina Hurricanes moving forward. Uh well, Elliot mentions how uh Netchass's exit interview was was very interesting. Uh he admitted to taking a step back and losing his confidence. It was a tough season for me and I hope to learn from it. He goes on to say that he is an RFA this year. And word is the ask was a little bit too rich for how the Hurricanes saw things. We will see where this goes, but it's not like Carolina to sell low. Netchass is only 23. So, you know, that could be a good young player in the range that Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin have talked about potentially coming available, albeit probably won't be cheap from an acquisition cost. And then, of course, contract perspective as well. Yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, the thing you mentioned at the end, they're not a team that likes to sell low. So what type of deal can you work out for Nick Cash, who is at a bit of a low? The thing I find interesting, however, is do they just work out a way to bring him back on a one-year deal at some point? Where the ask is big right. for a long-term deal, but after the year he had, tough postseason, the trades aren't where they're at. Does he kind of bet on, on himself on a cheap one-year or two-year deal? It'll still probably be in that $3 million range or whatever. It's not like he's not going to get paid. But I kind of see that maybe being the avenue for him because teams are probably going to try to poach him and not give up too much to get him. Carolina, though, like they've made uh, a decent amount of like good bets. Now, uh, I don't love the Kokinyemi one, uh, as we talked about earlier, but the Svechnikov contract is looking like it's going to be one hell of a bargain he signed forever at less than eight million bucks a season. It's really worked with guys like Jakob Slavin and Brett Pesha as well, where you know you've got Pesha at four million bucks and Slavin, who is annually one of the better defensive defensemen in the league, making just a hair over five million bucks. You think about what the Islanders had to pay for for Pelic and Pulak, and it's like, wow, okay, Slavin's getting that much, a pretty good discount there. Uh, for the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, you know, th- this is what they do. They squeeze players into accepting uh, uh, maybe less than market value long-term contracts. Or they make smart bets on young players, I should say. Yeah, so I mean, him. we'll see what happens with him ultimately. And I find that to be a really interesting situation because he is a good player that could really work out somewhere else. But at the same mm-hmm. time, with how they play in Carolina... Why hasn't he been better there? It's not like they don't have opportunity for him either. So I mean, yeah. it's not like we're talking about he's he's been hidden on a, on a really good team and doesn't get an opportunity. I mean, 
they've been trying like they've been really high on him since they brought him in like they've tried their best to get the most out of him it's not like they've you know done him wrong so to speak so you have to take that into consideration as well yeah plays plays top power play gets yeah. gets big minutes uh to to put up more offensive numbers hasn't really done it to that extent just yet uh okay also this thought um you know, we talk so much about the New Jersey Devils. Earth uh, mentioned them yesterday as where there's smoke, there's fire with New Jersey and Vancouver. So this thought, uh, New Jersey is going to be fascinating the next few weeks. Number two pick is in play, making a list of players they would consider trading for it. One guarantee is if they do move it, it's for talent with a lot of team control. Same with Ottawa at seventh overall. And that would uh, mean a Miller trade for the second overall pick. Probably unlikely, but uh, it does sound like New Jersey is interested in at least exploring what that, what the second overall pick could acquire for their team. I mean, the thing, Vancouver, I mean... The only that doesn't make sense for JT because you got to pay him a lot of money too. You're giving up the second yeah. overall pick and you got to pay this guy a lot of money. It makes more sense if you're going after a player who's a bit younger and might be on the out somewhere else that you'd have a bit more control over potentially. And I, this player has been traded way too many times already as it is. But like Pierre Luc Dubois, for instance, mm-hmm. he's 23 years old, he's an RFA. Yeah. And we've heard about, you know, what's going to happen with him in Winnipeg. Is that going to work out long-term? Will they pay him what he wants and all that sort of stuff? Is that the type of player maybe that a team like the Devils would be after instead? Where if you're giving up the second overall pick, you're getting a guy who's a bit different than what you have down the middle already. A guy who's young. A guy who has a very high upside. I just don't I don't, I don't know if that makes sense for them to go out and make the JT trade. Like, I, I think those are the types of trades I'd see them exploring more than anything else. Something that fits fits their team long-term a lot better. Because why would you trade a second overall pick for a 30-year-old in a year? Yeah. If you're trading the second overall pick, you're getting... Uh, you're, you're just... You're looking to find a player that's more uh, close to hitting their prime in exchange for, you know, one of the best prospects coming into the league. Right? And you have cost certainty, control... Like, you know, New Jersey's often been linked to Connor Garland as well. Like, you're not getting the second overall pick for Connor Garland. Not close to it, potentially, after uh, the way uh, we saw trade offers kind of trinkle in for um, Garland during the course of the season. But as I said last year, you know, it kind of felt like when the Canucks acquired Garland, they were essentially taking the bad contract for OEL in exchange for all of their bad contracts and Erickson Beagle and Roussel. And then it was sort of a swap for the ninth overall pick for, for Connor Garland. But after this season, it doesn't seem like you would get that sort of value back for Connor Garland in trade set. That hasn't been at least from what I could gather. And I don't know everything that happens and all the kind of offers or anything, but from what I've asked around was they weren't compelling. Like, I, and I mentioned this before. I'm not sure if Vancouver was ever even offered a second-round pick when Garland's name came out. And that's not to say Vancouver was shopping him. The Canucks have denied that. But as we know, they came in, checked the prices on their players. Teams called them. They had discussions. They listened to suggestions and you know potential proposals and all that sort of stuff. But I'm not sure at any point that the Canucks were offered a second-round pick for a guy like... I mean, a first-round pick for a guy like Connor Garland. I think maybe you got a second and a decent prospect. 
but you weren't quite getting, you know, that, that asset you'd want back in return. So the other, um, interesting thing to come out of Elliot Friedman's 32 thoughts blog. And I think this is one area that the Canucks will explore depending on how the market shakes out. A lot of eyes on qualifying offers. Cap space is tight, and the arbitration walkaway number this summer is $4,538,958. Teams can't walk away from any award below that number. So if they're not convinced a player's production matches, teams may choose to let them go for free in July rather than risk an arbitration award they can't escape. Uh, Andre Kasha has been mentioned with the Maple Leafs. There's others, Ethan Bear in Carolina, Dennis Gurionov in Dallas, Kasperi Kapanen, Dylan Strome, Miles Wood, and Pavel Zaka are the names that Elliot mentions as well. I, I mentioned Miles Wood last week. We know the Canucks had been linked to Pavel Zaka in the past, but this is, this is a fascinating market, one that's developed more and more over the last couple of years, Sat, with the flat cap. And I wonder if uh, this year there's there's even more talent out there as uh, some restricted free agents go unqualified. I absolutely think we're going to see that happen, especially you know all the names that were kind of mentioned there by uh, Elliot Friedman. I mean, you look at the contracts they're looking to get or what they might be getting, like it's all going to be north of four million essentially. And you look at what the years those guys have had, like even Victor Olofsson hasn't had a great year, and he's looking at you know getting paid potentially more than four million. I'd imagine they would still qualify and keep him. He's still a good player. But when guys are coming off a bit of tricky years and all of a sudden, you know, that third contract based on arbitration might be a way bigger number than a team envisioned, it makes it tough because you you look at the free agent market and you tell you and you look at it and you say, okay, well, can we find a free agent for about two million instead of paying this guy four million? It's very similar to what the Canucks um, found themselves doing uh, just not that long ago, for instance, with. With Ben Hutton, with Ben and, Hutton, uh, Troy, Stetcher. And Troy Stetcher, right? Because those guys, I mean, Hutton especially, because he was close to three million, and Stetcher was over two million, and they just were not worth the money. I mean, they they got like minimum contracts essentially. Stetcher got one point seven, Hutton got like a tryout afterwards, and the Canucks looked at it and said, "There's no way it makes sense for us to pay these qualifying offers when these guys can get next to nothing in free agency and get better players or similar players for a lot cheaper." So uh, th- those are some of the uh, interesting things to come out of it and things to keep an eye on for the summer. Uh, obviously, New Jersey is going to be a big player. I think Philadelphia is a fascinating team to watch this summer as well, Satin. Carolina is one of those teams, we, you know, I, I kind of liken them to the Leafs a little bit. Like how much can you build a great team, a perceived great team, but just continuously come up short? At some point, you've got to take a big swing and your big swing has got to be something better than a Sperry Cook and Yemi. I'm sorry, like, but it just, it does, you know, and uh, I, I'm curious to see how Carolina plays their offseason this year. Now, now uh, one thing yeah, I didn't want to ahead. bring up, and because uh, we got this, uh, we got this tweet a bit earlier from one of our listeners. Uh, we were talking about these trade proposals, and we were talking about uh, the proposals for JT Miller that Josh Elliott Wolf wrote about on Canucks Army, if you want to check it out. Yep. And uh, we had one of our listeners uh, chime in. I'm trying to bring up the name. It was Clark McPherson. It says, no prospects. What about Miller and Shen for Nylander and Sandine? Uh, I like I like the idea of these uh, uh, I like these trade discussion ideas. Now on that point, when I first heard Sandine, I'm like, ah, that's a guy the Leafs are not, you know, happy to. They're not. They're reluctant to trade. They've been reluctant to trade Rasmus Sandine. But Elliot Friedman kind of mentioned in his article that maybe Rasmus Sandine is a guy that could be available. 
Are those types of deals something you're against? <sighs> you get you get um, two years of Nylander next year and the year afterwards, and then you got long term control over Rasmus Sandin, who's twenty what twenty one years old, twenty two. That would um, I would not be opposed to to that deal. Like I think you get a ton of upside in Sandin. And then you get you replace you replace Miller's offense instantly with Willie Nylander. Yeah, like Nylander was just under a point a game this year. Yeah, I love Willie Nylander. I've I've said this for a long time. I mean, if, if you know, I've, I've mentioned this so many different times. Like if if the Canucks can get Willie Nylander, I'd do it, and I think he'd be a lot better here, and he'd figure it out. So I'm not against making those types of deals at all. I'm not sure if Toronto would do that, but to the point yeah. we made earlier, because you know Josh mentioned uh, the package that he had. It was Nyes, um, uh, Lilligren. Lilligren on a first and a second round pick, and you know Josh mentioned this is a team that has traded four second round picks already, and they've traded a lot of futures already and first round picks and all that sort of stuff. Maybe it just makes more sense for them to make a hockey deal, a Willie Nylander type. You know what I mean? And maybe you can't keep Sandine and Lilligren because of your cap situation, so one guy goes. Doesn't that make more sense for them to make that type of a deal for a big player that fits them as opposed to you know, trading away tons of futures? That deal saves the Leafs money on the cap, too. Yes. Um, at least for one season, right? Um, not longer term, necessarily, and I think it would be more of a rental acquisition rather than, hey, we're keeping JT Miller long-term. It's one of those things like, hey, we're going for it as as hard as we can each and every year. And if this is how we open up a little bit of cap space, potentially get better in our forward group, then we're going to do it. You know, they, they, they want to get harder in their, in their forward group. And I, I think Nylander's got uh, as much offensive talent maybe as, as JT Miller does. Maybe not as not, not quite as much, but it's close. I, I, but I, he's I, just not as hard of a player. He's not. And Adam, the current phone guy, congratulations, by the way. First time I've seen that. Nylander gets his points to sheltered minutes, does not replace Miller, is what Adam, the current phone guy, says. Okay, to some extent, doesn't play the same five on five minutes. However... On the power play, Willie Nylander this past year, 13 goals and 18 assists, 31 points on the power play. Yeah. He, so when I'm talking about replacing the production, he can replace a lot of that production on the power play and also replace a lot of that production at even strength. Not the same player, not the same impact, but if you're looking at replacing the offense, a lot of those points will get replaced. Uh, Sandine, the reason Sandine's name is coming up is because he's quite clearly... Not that he's surplus right now for the Leafs, but he's kind of surplus right now for the Maple Leafs. Um, and, and Elliot Friedman has mentioned it. Uh, it's you got Morgan Riley on the left side. You've got Mark Giordano on the left side. And, of course, Jake Muzzin's still there on the left side. They need help on yeah. the right side of D. And, you know, maybe they use Sandine as a piece to get a, a, a bigger piece, maybe a more impactful piece since, you know, they, they have the left side of their defense right now fairly settled, even though they still like Sandine long-term and what he may turn out to be. Yeah, Why well, not? You know, I mean, he looks like a good player. Absolutely. And, and I see Max in New West saying, this is so dumb and all this. We're responding to proposals that are being made and stuff that are coming in from listeners and stuff that we're talking about. And as far as making hockey deals, and the proposal made by Clark was Sandine and Nylander for Shen and JT Miller. Now... Mm-hmm. Is that too much for Toronto to give up? I think you can absolutely say that's too much. Of course. I mean, we're sitting here and talking about proposals. Would Toronto say yes to that? Would they say no to that? I mean, I'm not quite sure what they're going to do, but Nylander only has two years of control left. He's not a player they're probably going to be able to keep. Sandine's probably a player they may not be able to keep. 
either. So maybe they don't trade them for one player or whatever, but I think both those guys could very well be on the way out over the next year or so. Because I don't know if Willie Nylander would want to sign there himself, but I'm not quite sure they're willing to give him the money he'd want in two years. Yeah, I think, you know, it wouldn't be the two for one straight up. I think the Canucks would have to probably add something in if you were going to make that kind of a deal. But, um, you know, it is interesting. I think that, look, the Leafs are trying to uh, make their roster work better. And, you know, that's one way for next year, they can add a player of JT Miller's caliber and open up some cap space to maybe do something else on top of it which is uh, essential for them because they're, they're losing guys like Kasha and Mikheyev and, and all these RFAs that they've got that have punched above their weight and they don't have the cap space right now to pay them all. So it's going to be a bit of an issue uh, for how the Leafs figure that stuff out, but it's been a great, uh, you know, honestly love uh, some of the trade proposals we've got from some of the listeners today. Really appreciate all of them. Um, We do have to, Bet on hockey like never before with Play Now Sports, your local BC sports book. It's the Oilers and the Colorado Avalanche tonight. Again, on the money line tonight, Edmonton is the heavy underdog. They're paying 245 while the Colorado Avalanche paying a buck 57. So you're paying a, a little bit of juice on the Avs tonight. But as far as it goes tomorrow, Sat. The New York Rangers taking the one nothing series lead tomorrow. It is basically a pick 'em. Yeah, you're paying a little bit more juice on the Tampa Bay Lightning than you are the Rangers. But the Rangers showed me a lot last night. The problem is, I just know the Lightning have such a higher level to get to, whereas I felt the Rangers in a lot of areas played about as well as I would expect them to. I mean, it was it was like almost a perfect game for them. And, you yeah. know, Vasilevsky really struggled too. And Tampa just kind of looked behind the eight ball a lot in that game. And I don't foresee that to be the case the rest of the series. I think Tampa is going to play really well in the next game. And even if they go down 0-2, I don't worry about Tampa, and I'll use a cliche, until they, until they lose a game at home. If they lose yeah. a game at home and are down 3-1, that's when I worry about Tampa. Even if they lose the next game, I'm not worried about it until they get home. Yeah, especially, you know, you get that close to elimination. Shesterkin can steal one more and potentially yeah. end your playoffs that way. You know, the, the the thing I'll say about New York, that kid line um, just keeps impressing me more and more. Yeah. yeah. The Rangers fans are calling it the shift now where uh, Heedle scored, scored that goal uh, on the crossing pass from Keandre Miller. And, you know, they spent basically a minute in, in Tampa's end uh, against guys like uh, Chirelli and Sergachev were on the ice in that moment. It was an incredible shift. They kept cycling the puck, creating turnovers. Tampa got tired and it, it that line is just working perfectly. Like you, you, we needed to see a development somewhere in the roster for the Rangers, for them to really have a chance in this series. And, I think that kid line is something that that Tampa's going to struggle with all series because their depth has been getting tested against that third line of the Rangers. Well, I think the, uh, those guys also play like they don't know any better, to use another cliche, especially those younger guys. Yeah. I mean, they, they're not intimidated at all. At least right now, they're just kind of playing with a lot of that type of emotion. But I've, I've been really impressed with how Capo Caco is playing. Hedl's been taking a lot of the attention, obviously, with his goal-scoring spree and Lafreniere being the Canadian in the first overall pick. But 
the way Coppo Cock has been supporting the play, the way he's been able to perform, I've been mm-hmm. really impressed with him. And especially after he had a tough year, he missed some time and some healthy scratches. He's played every game in the postseason. That's the guy to me that's not quite getting the same buzz as those other two guys on that line. And man, if those guys figure it out in a couple of years, like even even with what they're doing right now, I think Tampa can still figure it a way out to slow them down and down and do some stuff against them and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. But Kako and Lafreniere in two or three years, that could be a terrifying combo on a line. Uh, I love Lafreniere and the the little mean streak that he's got uh, and and really shown through the course of these playoffs as well. Uh, he's been near a point a game in the in the postseason. And this is kind of carrying off how strong he was through the second half of this year. It's uh, it's a similar, you know, um, Stephen Stamkos was being called the bust in his first year yeah. uh, in the NHL. Remember that? And I mean, he still produced pretty well. And then obviously he took off. I think it was similarly like midway through year two in uh, in the in the show. And you, sometimes you just have to remind yourself how young these guys are. Uh, quick thought: Does Kemper being out? Like how much does this uh, how much does this benefit the Edmonton Oilers here, Sat? I think it benefits Edmonton significantly. I'm not going to say it's going to swing the series. I still have Edmonton winning it, so it doesn't change as far as I'm concerned in that yeah. aspect of things. But I do believe Frank Francois is very good and talented. He's not Darcy Kemper, and Darcy Kemper has struggled. It's a tough spot to put the kid in. You saw he he can't. I know it's hard to come in, but. He looked like he was uh, deer in headlights at times against Edmonton a little bit. I don't know how you can't look at it as a benefit. Yeah, it's it's tough coming in mid-game as well. We'll see if he's uh, able to, um, you know, have himself settled coming into tonight's game. Again, uh, Edmonton 245, pin at playnow.com on the money line. Bit of breaking news before we wrap up. Daryl Sutter named uh, the Jack Adams Award winner as the NHL's top Head coach beating out uh, Gerard Gallant. And uh, who's the other one that I'm blanking on right now? Uh, Andrew Brunette. Andrew Brunette. Yes. Andrew Brunette, of course, yes, with the Florida Panthers. So uh, Daryl Sutter, I think that was the right choice, even as much as Sutter didn't want it himself. I totally <laughs> forgot that they were doing awards differently this year. So I'm like, wait, yeah. what's going on? Wait, wait, what's happening? Uh, So Daryl Sutter, uh, Jack Adams Award winner. Coming up, uh, we'll take you to Denver, the Colorado Avalanche with a 1-0 series lead on the Edmonton Oilers. Can they make it to? You'll be hearing it next on Sportsnet 650. For producer Josh Elliott Wolf, intern Ben, my co-host Satyar Shah, I'm Dan Riccio. You've been listening to Canuck Central on Sportsnet 650.